at this point in the service, children in kindergarten through second grade are welcome to Primary Church. If you're staying, you can find the text in your order of worship, or you can follow along in your Bible or phone or anything else you'd like. I'm going to read the second half of the Ten Commandments, or the second table of the law, starting at Exodus chapter 12. So I say to you, hear the word of God. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. And Moses said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning as we come uh, continuing with your law, looking at, at the Ten Commandments, and in particular this morning, the Seventh Commandment, and there is so much uh, emotion, so much shame, uh, so much grief oftentimes that, that surrounds this commandment. I pray that you would cut through all of that. I pray this morning that you would uh, have us see the grace of this commandment, that you would have us see the life uh, giving uh, th that is in this commandment. And Father, I pray for myself. I pray that you would be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. And amen. When 1631, one of the biggest uh, scandals to hit the church happened. And, and when I say scandal, I mean sort of like a scandal like you'd see in the National Enquirer. You know, a, a scandal that's just sort of tawdry. So in, in 1631, uh, uh, two men, the, the King's Bible publishers, a guy named Barker and Lewis, they printed a run of Bibles and sold them. You know, they went out to the public. And so imagine you got a new Bible for Christmas in 1631, and you sit down to read your Bible, to do devotions. You're going to do the one-year Bible. And, and January is cool because you read Genesis. And then you get into February, and you're reading the book of Exodus, and you come across this passage. Oops. This is called the, the King James Adultery Bible. They accidentally left the word not out of the commandment. Actually, the reason it was a scandal was not only because they left the word not out, because there was actually some, some accusations that one of their competitors came in and did that. The reason I even found out about this is because there are only nine of these left in the world. They're among the most desirable collector's items as far as Bibles go, and they're, it's going on auction this week for about 15,000 pounds is the starting auction in London. Now, what's interesting is it caused a scandal. Both of the men, of course, were fired, um, and they were fined, and they were ultimately put in jail and ultimately sort of died paupers and miserable because they missed one word. Now, as I saw this, of course, it's interesting, just even the trivia of it, but what's more interesting, at least for me, was to think through and ask myself, would, the, would the, they have gotten the same response had they made a mistake with the Eighth Commandment? If, if the Eighth Commandment they left out and said, thou shalt steal, or thou shalt, you, you, thou shalt covet, 
In other words, I can imagine people would see thou shalt not steal, and they'd say, oh, that's an honest mistake. There's something about adultery. There's something about sex. There's something about relationships like that, 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 that where shame is attached. I mean, every, going all the way back to the fall, when you begin to talk about things like adultery, when you begin to talk about things like sex, when you begin to talk about things like marriage and marital relations, suddenly things get a little, you know, odd. I mean, I wish... It, it, I don't always wish this. In fact, I almost never wish this. That, you know, as a pastor, you could see, you know, sort of thought bubbles on people's heads as you're preaching. Last service, I would have loved to have seen those. You see, because this morning, we're actually talking about the seventh commandment. And the seventh commandment is, you shall not commit adultery. And so if it's in the, you know, we, I would never have chosen this, by the way. And, and in fact, you know, my wife and my assistant can tell you I've got calendar issues. I am the worst. I don't keep track of calendar issues. I didn't even know it was my 10th anniversary until about a month or two ago. I didn't know how long I'd been here. And so when I planned the preaching calendar, I, don't, I probably wouldn't have scheduled adultery on the day of my anniversary sermon. But, you know, I guess the upside of it is you'll probably never forget what happened today. So as we look at this command, basically, um, I want to review with you first, because uh, among all the commands, we tend to forget that they're not just sort of uh, laws that God put out to check and see whether we're being good or bad, that when God gave the Ten Commandments, he actually gave them with purpose. Remember, he had delivered Israel from the land of Egypt, and now he, is to, he told them, he gave them a mission. Their mission was to be a light to the nations. They were to be a holy nation, a priesthood of believers, that they would bear witness to the character and goodness of God to all the nations around them. And if the question came to their head, well, how are we supposed to do that? The very next thing he gives them is the Ten Commandments. And so if you remember also, the Ten Commandments start with grace, not with law. They start with the words, I am the Lord your God who delivered you from the land of Egypt. Now have no other gods but me. In other words, he didn't say, obey these ten things and then I will deliver you. He says, I have delivered you, therefore now here are the ten things that, that bear witness to my name the best. And these things, we talked about the purpose is that they would protect Israel from, from following other gods, but they would also equip Israel to actually live lives that would, would be attractive to the nations around them. And I thought, especially with today's commandment that we're looking at, I, I thought I'd put it more in the vernacular for you, is that when Moses gave the commands, that the intention was that they be lived out, not called out. In other words, when, when the Ten Commandments were given to Israel, the, the intention was primarily that they would be lived out before the nations, not called out to the nations. And in other words, he didn't say, here are Ten Commandments, and what I want you to do is I want you to go into Canaan, and I want you to point fingers at every idolater and adulterer and sexual deviant and tell them how wrong they are according to the Bible. Now, every now and then, he does that. And every now and then, we might have a responsibility to do it. You know, but primarily, our job, Israel's job, was to live out the Ten Commandments, not call out the Ten Commandments. Now, every now and then, he would call a prophet to do that. Right? You think of Jonah. He'd go tell the, these pagans in Nineveh that they're uh, offending me with their sin. That's one thing. But generally speaking, the commands are to be lived out and not called out. And I think if we do that... We actually gain a greater voice to talk about things like sexuality and marriage and adultery and those kinds of things. So with that in mind, we basically are going to look at three things today. I know that surprises you. Um, and the way I thought I would come at this commandment is, is sort of give us some definitions. 
In, in other words, uh, what is marriage? You can't talk about adultery unless you actually have a pretty good definition of marriage, unless you understand what marriage is. You can't, and so, the, so that's the first thing, what is a marriage? So the next question, of course, is what is adultery? We'll talk about that. And then the last question is, uh, what kind of lover do you need? Do you need a lover? And if you need one, what kind do you need? Do you, do you need a spouse? And if so, what kind of spouse? Do you have a spouse? And if so, what kind of spouse? So first question we're going to look at is this question of what is marriage, right? <laughs> I couldn't help but do that. If you've seen The Princess Bride, the, the marriage at the end, marriage, you know. Um, I did that for just nothing but a laugh. But... Um, it, when you talk about marriage, and when we talk about marriage it, in, in and around you know, the workplace or in and a, with our friends and family, I think we often make a mistake. Or if you read articles, remember when, when the whole issue of whether or not the, the Supreme Court was going to prove gay marriage and these kinds of things, people would often say, what, what is the definition of marriage? And it was this, and it was this, and it was that, and it was that. Really, that's probably the wrong way to go about it, at least in my sincere opinion. In other words, the best way to go about it is to de determine the purpose of marriage. And if you determine the purpose, then the definition takes care of itself. Because if the purpose is something that, that, that can only be accomplished one way, then the, the, the definition is, is a given. So, for example, on, 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 from a secular perspective, if you define the purpose of marriage is just to enable people to, to be able to access their partner's 401k plan or to be able to visit their spouse in the hospital, then in a sense, if that's your, the purpose of it, then anyone could get married. And another, just a side note, what I'm going to give you now is I'm going to talk about what the Bible says about the purpose of marriage. One of the mistakes I think we often make, if you're a Christian, is we expect people who don't believe the Bible to live as if they did. And if, and if someone doesn't believe the Bible, we shouldn't expect them to live as if they did. But in fact, we need to probably show them with our lives what, the, what we're actually talking about rather than point fingers. So um, I'm pretty sensitive to this issue. And by the way, um, just you're going to feel pretty awkward in a couple minutes. If it makes you feel any better, I feel much more awkward. Okay? So when we begin to talk about the purpose of marriage, you have to, you have to start back in Genesis. And so in Genesis chapter 1, and verse 27 and 28, let me read that to you. It says in verse 27, So God created man in his own image, and the image of God had created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over fish of the sea, over birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God creates man in his own image, and it says he created a male and female in their own image. So he created two genders, and then he gave them their purpose. Did you see their purpose there? Their purpose, he, he created them, and then said, now be fruitful and multiply. By definition, it takes a male and a female to be fruitful and multiply. Why would he tell them that? He's not telling them just out of some moral obligation, because that's what we think. But remember, God's mission was to populate the earth with his image, to fill the earth with his glory, and that to fill the earth also with his image, that, that they might be continually singing his praise and glorifying him and communing with him and fellowshipping with him in paradise. Well, that could only happen if the first couple, the male and the female, were able to actually to produce offspring. 
And in fact, if you think about it, before the fall, the, the, the mission before the fall and the mission after the fall is very similar, right? The mission before the fall is to fill the earth with the image of God. The, the second fall is to, to fill the earth with the image of God or with the renewed image of God. In other words, as people come to know Jesus, before the fall, the way that you conducted evangelism was sex. In other words, the way that you carried out God's commission to fill the earth and to, to take over the earth was through sexual relationship. There's no other way to say that. It's awkward, but it's a fact. And so he says, be fruitful and multiply. And then he says, rule and subdue. In other words, he says, reproduce and fill the earth with my image and then act on my behalf as vice regents or, or, or princes and princesses of the earth. So the purpose primarily, or the first purpose he gives them, is procreation. It's, it's just as simple as that. Now the problem is, if your view is that marriage is only about procreation, you can start to view, view sex as sort of a necessary evil, right? Okay, we had two kids, now you know, how many, we need to have 2.1 in order to you know, sustain the population, so now we don't need to have sex anymore. That's, that, that's not what the purpose is saying, because he actually, there's more to it in Genesis chapter 2. So on one hand, um, the purpose of marriage is procreation. It, it is to produce offspring. And, you know, different people, some people can have kids, but generally speaking, that's why he gave this thing called marriage. So if you look next at the pers- what I'm calling the pursuit, or a, a bigger outworking of the purpose, is in Genesis chapter 2. And it says in verse uh, 20, I'll pick it up in 22, Well, 21, so the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he had made into a from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. In verse 24, Moses says, therefore man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, if, if you ever wondered if God had a, had a sense of humor, so he places Adam in the garden, tells him to work it and keep it, and then it says it's not, Adam becomes lonely. And so what happens? So Adam, God parades, well, you know, you can almost imagine the Trinity, hey, watch this, you know. And so he's parading the animals in front of Adam. And Adam's, you know, zebra, camel, you know, platypus, I don't know what to call that thing, you know. It, it keeps going, and finally, you know, and there's none suitable for him. And almost, it's almost as if God were, were, were priming the pump to, to make sure Adam was really ready for what he was about to do for him. Because what he was about to do for him was something that was so unimaginable. So Adam goes to sleep. Imagine if you're, you're, you're the only man on earth, and you go to sleep, and you wake up, and there's a naked woman beside you. In Hebrew, this says something like, ay caramba, <laughs> right? He's, oh, hello, right? Adam wakes up. He literally, what he says is sort of an ancient Near Eastern version of wedding vows on one hand, but it's said with the force of, whoa. So, and notice what he says. He said, this at last. Why do you walk the dogs in front of me and the cats and the geese and everything? At last, flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones, she shall be called woman because she was taken out. So one, there's this passion that you see that's already developing, that Adam is like, wow. 
And then you see it says in verse 24, therefore, we have more purpose here. He says, therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Let me stop there. So the first thing that you see is the man shall leave his father and mother. You know, any pastor who in here, anyone who's been a pastor for a while can tell you one of the big problems that you find in couples' marriages when they come to you is that one or the other of them, or both, has not actually left their mother yet. Or they haven't left their father yet. In other words, at some point, if you get married, you are actually now in a different family. You're part of an extended family, of course, but one of the problems is, is, is the purpose of marriage is that you would actually leave your father and mother and become a father and mother of, of your own. What's more interesting to me is in the King James, it says leave and cleave, right? That they should leave and, and cleave unto his wife. And it's an awkward word to, to translate. In our version, it says the man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. What that says literally in Hebrew is he shall leave his father and mother and hotly pursue his wife. If we were in like southern Mississippi, we would say something like, he is to be on his wife like a, a, a bulldog on a meat wagon, right? Or, or like white on rice. You name your metaphor. In other words, it, it's not just a holding fast. In other words, it's not like, honey, you know, just hold her. It's like literally that, that she can't get rid of this guy. Because he is so enamored with her and so in love with her and so willing to pursue her that his pursuit, every time she looks around, there he is. Now that can be a, a good thing or it can be a bad thing, right? But ask yourself this, husband or wife, does your spouse feel like that about you? Does your, in, in other words, if, if someone said, you know, how, how does your spouse make you feel? Would the first thing out of your mouth be hotly pursued? It should be. It should be. Remember I told you it was going to get awkward. That he says the man should leave his father and mother and that he and his wife, that, 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 in other words, there's this passion that goes along with, the, with, the, with marriage. So on one hand, there, there's a practical function, procreation. On the other hand, there, there's a, a subjective function, it's passion. And why? It all sort of builds up to, this, to the last line here. It says, and they shall become one flesh. And in Hebrew, that means more. We tend to think it just means, oh, that means when they have sex, they're sort of together, and now they're one flesh, and then they come apart. It, that, that's not what it means. That's part of what it means. But what it means is that they will be, uh, in some sense, every part of their being is given to the other person. In other words, the New Testament word for what that means is union. In other words, the New Testament talks about the fact that we have union with Christ. That means we are actually joined to him in a way that is completely and utterly inseparable. And did you notice what that union provides for Adam and Eve? That they should become one flesh. In other words, they're completely vulnerable with regard not only to their sexuality, but they're vulnerable with regard to their emotions and their fears and their dreams. Everything is made one. And it says in verse 25, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. In other words, what marriage was given for to us in, at some level was to be a place in which we could be naked and not ashamed, that we could be, we could be naked and be pursued, that we could be naked ultimately and, and have family. And instead, what happens is we begin to separate sex from, from other things, and it can't be. I read a great, Tim Keller has a great book called Counterfeit Gods. You see, we tend to think about things like sex in terms of, uh, you know, we either have the Greek view 
And the Greeks would basically say that sex is just an appetite. In, in other words, if you're hungry, you eat. And if you're sleepy, you sleep. And if you're amorous, you have sex. And then you would have, on the other hand, it's actually, a, it's, it's not a, a, an accurate view, but what, let's call it puritanical view, for the sake of a better thing, where, where sex is a necessary evil. And Lewis actually addressed this whole idea of sex as appetite. And, and here's where I'm going with this. Notice what, I'm, I'm just going to read it to you. It says, in 1940, C.S. Lewis heard from many of his peers in the British Academy that sex was nothing but an appetite, like that of food. Once we recognized this, they said, and began simply to have sex whenever we wanted, people would cease to be driven mad by desire for love and sex. Lewis doubted this and proposed a thought experiment. Suppose you came to a country where you could fill a theater simply by bringing a covered plate onto the stage and then slowly lifting the cover so as to let everyone see, just before the lights went out, that it contained a mutton chop or a bit of bacon. Would you not think in that country something had gone wrong with the appetite for food? And one critic said that if he found a country in which such striptease acts with food were popular, he would conclude that the people of that country were starving. In other words, if you, that was in the 40s, by the way. And in the 40s, you ever seen old movies about World War II where some GI will find a postcard of a woman who has shown her ankles and everyone will sort of blush? That's the era where Lewis was talking about people being crazy about sex. They didn't have the, the internet. They didn't have the biggest industry, one of the biggest industries in the world, and the biggest industry on the internet is pornography. If, if, if just giving people an app, you know, letting it be an appetite would change things, it would, instead of getting worse or better, it would get wor or worse, it would get better. What is my point to all this? Is that there's more to sex than just the physical act. There's this one flesh part, there's this desire and this longing for union that you can't get any other way but through commitment and covenantal relationships. It's just as simple as that. In fact, most, uh, most counselors would tell you that most affairs happen. When, when people have affairs, they, they don't happen because of, of sort of pure lust. You know, someone looks over, but oftentimes they happen because of longing and longing to be known. And what marriage was intended for originally was a place where people could be known and known well and known completely. And so on one, that's what, this is what marriage is. That's a pretty high and exalted view of marriage. So in that context, what is adultery? Well, adultery is a violation of everything I just told you, not to spoil my own uh, point, but literally speaking, what is adultery? Adultery is when you have joined in a relationship with another person in this institution called marriage, and then you violate it by having some kind of relationship, sexually or otherwise, with another individual. In other words, you break that union. So that's the literal meaning of it. Everyone gets that. And now, on the other hand, remember we, we've talked about every single sermon, we've talked about these principles of how to interpret the law, and you often hear me talking about cups and coins, and the principle of the cups would say that basically when you apply the law, what happens in your heart is just as uh, important as what happens outside. In other words, the, the inside of the cup, it's just as important that it be clean, that it be squared away as the outside. And let's, so with that in mind, let's, let me just read to you what Jesus says about adultery. Part of the Sermon on the Mount, he says to the Pharisees, you heard that it was said, you should not commit adultery, but I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Oh. 
Right? I can't speak for anyone else in this room but myself. That's a pretty high mark. In other words, he says, he says you've heard it said don't commit adultery, and of course the Pharisees at the time would be saying, of course we haven't, we're righteous. He said, but I said, if you've even thought about it, you're guilty. If you've even lusted after someone, you are guilty. And so that's big, right? That, that the inside of the cup is dirty. One of the things I think I forgot on my last points about the, the marriage, the portrait of marriage, is just this, and it would be appropriate to bring it up. Now, what marriage is a portrait of in the Bible, among other things, it's a portrait of God's relationship with his people. In other words, when you, when you come together to, to get married, you make vows, right? You, you, one, one party promises one thing, the other party promises the other thing. Well, God's relationship with us is the exact same way. In fact, if you look at the giving of the Ten Commandments, there's a sense in which they are almost like wedding vows. God is making a covenant with Israel. He says, Here's, here are the things, that, will you promise to do these things? And they say, all these things we will do that promises have been made. Now, the reason that's important to get is because anytime we commit any kind of sin, if that's the relationship God has with us, that he's our husband and we are the bride, as you know, Ephesians 5 says that Jesus, just, just as the husband is to the wife, so Jesus is to the church. If that's the case, that means every sin that we commit is adultery. Remember I told you that when you begin looking at the Ten Commandments, that the, every commandment sort of goes and just expands. So if God is the husband of Israel, and if God, Jesus is the husband of the church, then any act of unfaithfulness, whether it has to do with money or anything else, is also an act of unfaithfulness to God himself, which also makes us guilty of the seventh commandment. See, it gets big. And so then when you look at the, the, the principle of coins, remember what the principle of coins said? The principle of coins said that the, each of the laws has two sides to it. There's a negative and a positive side. So if something is forbidden in the law, like adultery, and here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to do you a favor right now. I'm going to tell you something, and then I'm just going to let it sit for a minute. And then I'm going to go on. So I want you to think through this on your own. <laughs> if the seventh commandment says you shall not commit adultery, negatively speaking, you should not cheat on your spouse, Literally speaking, what is the positive outworking then of the seventh commandment? See where I'm going with this? In, in other words, if the, if the negative, if it, if it is forbidding you to, to have sexual relations with someone outside of your marriage, what is it actually demanding of you? It's demanding that you actually do engage with your spouse. You see, because the opposite, it, it, unless you look at both sides of the coin, what you, can, you, you could have is a couple sitting in your office, which has happened, I think, to every pastor here at one point or another, and you're trying to find out, get to the bottom of what's going on, and, and the spouse will say, I've been faithful to my wife for 20 years, and I have never looked at another woman, and I have never cheated. And you say, when is the last time you and your wife actually, you know? It's, by the way, it's more awkward in counseling than it is here, believe it or not. When, yeah, when's the last time? And they say, I don't, I don't know, a year. If someone says that, that's just as bad. In other words, you're just as guilty of adultery if you are not pursuing your spouse as if you are pursuing someone else. That the positive outworking of the command is actually good marital relations. And in other words, by just not doing anything, you're not obeying the command. It's like any of the other commands. 
that when we get to stealing, right? The opposite of stealing is what? It's generosity. So the opposite of not having a relationship with your spouse is actually engaging and having a relationship with your spouse. It's actually, it, it's actually pursuing your spouse. Now, the question is, it, it, you know, people, you would say, well, you don't know my spouse, right? And, and we, yeah, honestly, I don't. But the, the question is, you can only actually do that if you have the right spouse. In other words, when you begin to look at all of the demands that I've put on you this morning, or that the Bible puts on you this morning, not only are you never to think about lust, you're not never to do anything, you know, sexually deviant, but you're supposed to get to be married, and if you do, you are supposed to pursue your spouse, and you should be, you know, whatever you want to say about that. You can only do those things, ultimately, if you have the right spouse. And so that's where I want to go next, and finally, is basically... How do you know you have the right lover? Or how does the right lover make all this possible? Well, the first thing I want to look at as we talk about what does it mean to have the right lover is I want to look at the prophet Hosea. One of the, one of the things that, that, that it sort of scares me sometimes is because God does something to the prophets that he actually does to us too. We're just not as, as keen on it. Is Sometimes God calls individuals to make, for their whole lives to be object lessons. That's happened. I know that's happened to some of you, that, that, that you're an object lesson for something that God wants to teach everyone else. And so now imagine you're Hosea, you're, you're this prophet, you're, you, know, you just graduated from college and seminary, and you're just raring to go and become a preacher, and God comes to you. I'm going to basically culminate in chapter 3 of Hosea, but I'm going to start and read you a few things to build some context. So in the book of Hosea, it opens up. And I'm going to, I'll read you verse 1 and 2. It says, The word of the Lord came, that came to Hosea, the, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel. And in verse 2, it says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. <laughs> it, it, he, notice he doesn't come to Hosea and, and even say, Hosea, I want you to, here's the deal, I want you to marry a prostitute. Gomer is never called a prostitute. Gomer is called, unfortunately, a wife of whoredom. Now, how would we define that? That basically means she is loose. She, she, she you know, goes out on Hosea all the time. And God actually says, I want you to marry that woman right there. And have children of whoredom. And so as you go through chapter 1, it is heartbreaking. Notice what it's, I'm just going to read you some of the things. It says, so verse 3, so he went and took Gomer, the son of Dibbleam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And in verse 6, it says, she conceived again and bore a daughter. By the way, each time she conceives, it's probably not. Hosea's. Most people are in agreement on that as well. Remember, because God said the children are going to be children of her order. So she, she's conceived again. And so she conceived the more daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name. No mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them all. In verse 8, when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. So if you ask, does God ever get in fights with his wife? The answer is yes. 
Or at least does he get angry? And here he's pretty angry. Now here's the good news of the, the, the grace of God. His anger lasts for a moment, but his favor lasts for a lifetime. He tells Hosea, I want you to, to marry this woman who sleeps around on you all the time, and I want you basically to take care of those three kids that aren't yours, and I want you to name that one Jezreel because of what they've done to the land. I want you to name that kid No Mercy. Imagine, you know, hey, No Mercy, come in for dinner. What is the kid's life like? And he said, I want you to name that one Not My People. Hosea does it. And then God begins to talk about his relationship with Israel and how they have committed adultery against him over and over and over again. And how does he respond? In chapter 2, it says this in verse 14, starting in verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And she shall answer as in the days of her youth, at the time she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me, you will call me my husband. For I will remove the name of the bowels from your, from your mouth, and they shall, be remembered, they shall remember your name no more. In verse 19, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And then I, I love it, verse 22, it says, The earth shall answer with grain and oil, they shall answer Jezreel, and I will sow her my, for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. And verse chapter 3, it says, And the Lord said to me, that is Hosea, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves children of Israel. Though they turn to other gods and love the cakes and raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a leketh of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So I also will be to you. So God tell, imagine God telling you, you know, I know this woman has stepped out on you over and over and over again. Now she has gotten to the point where she is literally on the auction block. In other words, she's gone from just sort of sleeping around to actually just wholesale selling herself out. Now imagine you are Gomer, and you've gotten to the point where you are so low, you're now on the auction block, and there are hungry eyes looking at you, and you're wondering, which of these guys is going to buy me? And which of these guys, and what is he going to do to me, and what is he going to expect of me when he gets home? And in the meantime, you have no idea that in the background, God is telling Hosea, Hosea, I want you to go get her. And it's almost implicit there, Hosea's complaint. Why do I have to go get her again? You know she's been unfaithful to me. You know that blah, 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 blah. And God's answer to him is because that's what I do to Israel. That's what I do to you. In other words, just like I'm telling you to pursue this wife of whoredom, that's what I do over and over and over again. And what's different between this time and every other time that, that Gomer had cheated on Hosea is that this time it actually costs him something. In other words, it's, it's one thing for her to come in late at night, and I don't know how he dealt with her when she came in late after doing whatever she had done, but it didn't really cost him anything other than his dignity, maybe. But now God is saying, I want you to go, and you get the sense that he's having to pay everything that he owns, because it's an odd number of things. It's not like, it's a million dollars, right? It's, it's like, you know, is, is this number of shekels and this much barley and a, and a lecheth extra? It's like he had to take everything that he had 
and pay for her. And when he brought her in, he didn't scold her. He did say, you, you can't do that anymore. But in fact, what you need to do is you need to be mine, just as I am promising to be you. If, if, if you look at that and you say, man, now Hosea, that's the kind of spouse. Hosea is not as good as you need, by the way. Hosea had to be told, what if you had someone who volunteered to buy you off the auction block? What if you had someone who, in spite of all of your adulteries, all of your sins, all of your uncleanness, all the crazy stuff you've ever done, all the things you're ashamed of, was still willing to come and buy you? And not only was he willing to come buy you, but he was willing to come pay the ultimate price for you. That'd be the kind of spouse that you need. That'd be the kind of spouse that you could, you could you'd get used to, would it not? And here's the good news, is you have that spouse, or at least he's offering himself to you. His name is Jesus. Jesus came and he actually finds us on the auction block in the midst of our sin and our misery and he pays everything. He gives the ultimate, he pays the ultimate price for us. And in the process, he doesn't, remember Paul says, there is therefore no, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He doesn't condemn us in the process. We're already condemned. He came to save us. Now the question is, do you think you need a spouse like that? You need a spouse who's willing to do anything for you, a spouse who's willing to, to save you from your sins. And if your answer is no, there's one more. One more thing I need to say. You see, if, Je- if you don't think you need Jesus, what you need to do is you need to consider what I'm going to call the Giselle test. One of my favorite movies of all time. I know I say I have favorite movies, but this is really, I mean it this time. My children can bear witness to this, is the movie Enchanted. Have you ever seen the movie Enchanted? It is the most amazing movie. It basically, is, it's, a, it's Disney mocking Disney. It's about a cartoon princess who is going to marry her prince, and she's cast into a well by the evil stepmother, and when she gets to the bottom of the well, it's a manhole cover, and it pops off, and she's in the middle of Manhattan. And she has flesh and bones. And so a lot of the story is, is sort of just her dealing with what does it mean to be a completely innocent fairy princess, or princess in the middle of cynical New York? And she, she meets this man. He's a very cynical divorce lawyer of all things. And he helps her and takes her in. And you sort of get this idea they might be falling in love. But at the same time, uh, Prince Edward comes from, from fairy tale land to pursue her. Remember, he is just, he's like one of my favorite characters. Remember that he's just so sort of narcissistic. Remember his assistant says, Sir, do you like yourself? And he looks up and he said, What's not to like? Right? <laughs> I love that. And whenever he sees his princess, he can't help but break into song. I've been dreaming of my first love's kiss. Remember, the whole thing. And he's going through all of the right motions. But you have this, you don't know if he really understands what love is. And you see in her this sort of discomfort because she's wondering if she understands what love is as well and what it means for someone to truly love her. And skipping to the very end. The very end of the movie, she is actually poisoned. They're at a big ball, and she's poisoned by the evil witch who has come through time also to poison her. And when she, she drops dead, they don't know what to do with her, and someone comes up with the idea. Love's first kiss could awaken her. Love's first kiss could raise her from the dead. And so, of course, Prince Edward, you know, being full of himself, he runs over and just plants a big smooch on her. Nothing. He tries it again. Nothing. And no one knows what to do. 
And then someone looks up at the man who's been with her this whole time, who's cared for her, who's been faithful to her, who's done everything for her, and they basically tell him to try. And Robert's very sheepishly, he goes over and gives her a kiss, and as soon as he does, she wakes up and says, I knew it was you. I knew it was you. I knew you were the one. You see, the Giselle test says this, your spouse might be faithful to you, your spouse might be good to you, your spouse might be gracious to you, but at the end of the day, if your spouse can't raise you from the dead, you need another one. In other words, whether you're married or whether you're single, you need Jesus as the one who will never fail you or forsake you. Jesus is the one who will be there in sickness and in health and for all the days of your life. And Jesus is the only one who not only can forgive your sins, but who also is able to raise you from the dead that you might be able to experience new life and new creation now and forevermore. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray now that as we um, continue with the service and we get ready to have this feast here as well and then a feast after, um, that you would bring about a, a sense of, of hope and, and, a, and a sense of freedom with regard to the seventh commandment, that it, that it would actually be in the context of the gospel something that gives our church life rather than, than, than fear. And I just pray that you would uh, open eyes where they're blind. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen and amen.